Hello, welcome to the Brazilian Health Nut Show. Here you will find cutting-edge information provided by the best experts in the world so you can learn how to burn fat for the rest of your life. Bruno da Gama is the Brazilian Health Nut in a mission to solve the problems you have when trying to lose weight forever. He is a nutritional therapy practitioner, a certified personal trainer, and a holistic lifestyle coach by the Czech Institute. Don't forget to say hello and sign up to our free newsletter at www.brazilianhealthnet.com. Let's go. All right, Dan, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate the time. How are you doing today? Uh, doing great. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Uh, I would like to hear a little about of your history, man. I'm like fascinated with the history of people. How did you go from little Dan to big Dan and being a sleep researcher? How did it happen, man? Oh, gosh, you know, um, it's so funny when you, you tell your own story and it's always smoother than the reality. But, you know, I, I think um, I was always into health and fitness. I played sports growing up. I was very passionate about the sports I played. You know, I, whatever I was into at the time, it was it just dominated my whole life. I had a few injuries when I was young, and mm. those injuries got me to focus on my body earlier that you know i think um i was mindful of my my body in a way that a lot of kids my age were not um from a pretty early age because i was trying to work around uh a knee injury and an ankle injury and so um that was i think what probably started it off which is a passion mm -hmm. for you know fitness and and how to performance optimize and then also mindfulness about okay how do i work around these issues how am i smart about it And when I went to um, college, I didn't know what to study. So I studied everything in the kind of sports medicine, exercise physiology, facilities management, mm -hmm. uh, everything, right. I, um, you know, dual, dual major, dual minor, um, all related to, to sports in some way, sports or health. But what I found is that over time, as I took more classes, my interests really gravitated towards the harder sciences. And when I, I eventually then went to Florida State for graduate school, and I studied exercise physiology. And even within that program, my interests skewed more towards more basic science than application sciences. And so I was uh, doing some work looking at Uh, leptin, which is a hormone released from body fat mm -hmm. that then tells the brain how much fat is on the body. And that was new. It was mid-90s. It was an exciting time because that, that hormone was recently discovered and named, although physiologists understood that, it that there was some feedback um, signal that was operating uh, in, within our body for, for years right. as a part of this lipostasis theory. So anyway, yeah, I just was really compelled by that information um, was very, you know, studied very, very hard and enjoyed every second of it. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, um, I, my career was, you know, kind of sampled a couple of different things. Um, I worked originally doing some cancer research, looking at how lifestyle affects the progression of prostate cancer. And so things like stress management, nutrition, 
sleep, exercise, um, interpersonal communication with your spouse, all of those things can affect basically the internal, the, the internal environment of the body, mm-hmm. how that internal environment and the signals that are produced or not produced from how you're living, how that then will influence gene expression and, in this case, the rate and progression of prostate cancer. Right. And so I just love that, and I love that it was a holistic approach to saying what is needed by the body um, in order, because you know, some, with science, it's, it can be very difficult. You have to, in order to have adequate control, so you know what you're studying. Science can sometimes be overly reductionist, so you're just studying, for example, selenium levels that are, you know, 200 milligrams versus 400, or, you know, something that is very, very minuscule. Mm-hmm. Important, yes, but it's also good to do research where you pan out and you say, okay. What if we let's say if we have uh, a goal here, which is then to affect lifestyle in multiple ways? How does that affect the internal environment, and then how does that internal environment affect, uh, you know, disease and health markers? And so, that was some of my earliest experience after graduate school, and it got me very interested in you know in kind of doing that long term. But then elsewhere on my trajectory, I also worked um, for a genomics company, uh, looking at genome for. You know, interesting. Uh, it, that that company was look, was working with pharmaceutical companies, so we were looking for gene targets that would be eventually um, utilized for creating therapies to help with a huge variety of right. conditions. So you started very broad with mo- mostly exercise and nutrition, and then as you progress, you start to seeing all these other factors and trying and start to go deep and deep into the research, right? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to know. I wanted to know how things were working and why they were working. And then I think my next job, I worked for a pharmaceutical company first in sales, but then soon after in medical affairs. And medical affairs does all scientific support on products after they're approved. And so I ran a research grant program and then all scientific publications. And it was a fantastic, fantastic job because I was basically interacting with the top sleep researchers throughout the world mm-hmm. every day. And um, that the, drug, the, the company had a pharmaceutical compound called Xyrum, which is used to treat narcolepsy. And that thus began my interest and career in sleep. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and that's how I got to... Convert. That's how we got into the more on the sleeping research side of the, the health. That's right. Okay, cool. Yeah, like... Uh, we always talk about nutrition and exercise when dealing with fat loss and health, but we tend to forget a little bit about sleep. So that's what I really want to talk to you about today. It's like about the sleeping part and why it's so important when talking about fat loss. So sure. tell, tell us a little bit about fat loss and sleep. Well, sleep has come onto the radar over the last, well, 10 years or so, probably 10, 15 years. And I paused when I said radar because there's sleep, you know, the research always will kind of be behind or, or excuse me, in front of what the, what becomes popular. So sleep research started 15 years ago, but now it's becoming more mainstream where people are including and discussing sleep as a part of the equation for not only health, but also for the management of body fat. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people at first blush, they hear ah, sleep, sleep loss, it just doesn't seem to make that much sense to regulate body fat. Um, really, you know, the tendency is to really focus on food and, and exercise, as, as you know. But 
if you think about sleep loss as being a stressor for the body, then that stressor will create an internal environment that then will um, enable you to put on, you know, more enable your body to, to store fat regularly. And so there's hormonal ad- adjustments that take place after sleep loss. And then there's also cognitive adjustments that take place in a sleep-deprived condition that make you pursue food that is fattening. And that is a lot of what my research does. It looks specifically at what I call ecologically relevant amounts of sleep loss. So when you get not just a whole night of sleep loss, which a lot of studies do, but just a couple hours less, which is much more relevant for a lot of people experience that regularly. Right, few people experience one night of total sleep deprivation regularly. I mean, it can happen, but it's not as common as just missing a couple hours here and there. So, my research looks at does just a little bit of sleep loss impact uh, what we choose to eat or, or what we want to eat? And so, that's what I've been doing recently um, in my 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 research in sleep. Mm-hmm. And how much would that be? Like this little bit? Is that like an, an amount? Well, yeah. So usually when you're designing sleep studies, um, oftentimes when we're talking about sleep, we talk about it uh, with population statistics. So you might say uh, people in general get eight hours or get seven and a half hours or whatever that time is. But individuals have their own sleep need. And um, that is called the habitual sleep time. So that is what a person will maintain on a regular basis um, and so you and I might have a different amount of sleep that we need. I know that my, my wife probably sleeps about an hour more than I do regularly. Um, and so that's just kind of what we found. She goes to bed a little bit earlier and she sleeps in a little bit later. And um, yeah, so we all have our own individual sleep need. And so what's important is it, how much, if you're getting less sleep than what you need, not necessarily uh-huh. saying, you need to get eight hours or you need to get seven. Right. And so that's kind of where some of the confusion happens. But generally, if you're getting, you know, what you asked was how much, how much can you, uh, or, you know, how much is, is that right amount um, to start seeing these problematic uh, effects of, of not getting enough sleep and then increasing fat gain. And that's going to be very individual as well. But what generally what we did in my study is we gave people – up to 50% less sleep in one night, but we also gave, we also had different groups of, of seven people in the study. So, you know, Bruno, you might've been asked to get only 70% of your normal sleep time for a night. Somebody else might've been asked to get 80%. Somebody else might've gotten 60%. And then we looked at every different group and we, we said, okay, well, how, you know, what was, what did we, what did we notice? And generally what we found is that regardless of the amount of sleep that sleep that you got, if you, were affected on the day of the study where your reaction time your, was slower than your baseline, then you were more likely to pursue foods that you rated as low health. Right. Yeah, that's something that I, I want to talk to you about, the impact of this sleep deprivation and the decision-making. I know with myself it's huge. Like if I don't sleep very well, I tend to crave more high-calorie foods, you know, like sugar or something. It's more. It's easier for me to to go go ahead and, and have that cookie. If I don't, if I sleep well, then I'm more, it's, it's hard, it's easier for me to resist. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people will intuitive, intuitively acknowledge that, um, right away. It's funny when I, when I talk about my research, the most common response I get is, Oh yeah, I totally do that. You know, when yeah. you say, Oh, if, 
tell us or telling them about what I look, you know, looking at sleep loss. And a lot of people will just automatically will say, absolutely. I experienced that commonly, but this can happen even beyond your awareness. So even if you don't really notice it, it can still be happening in the background. And, um, and that's one of the interesting things about sleep and sleep loss is that some of the effects you absolutely without a doubt notice, but some of them you don't. And, um, in some ways, not getting enough sleep can change the way that you make decisions, and it's called your you know your way to assess a situation will will change. So a good example, if you think about casinos, casinos make a lot of their money in the wee hours of the morning, and they use artificial light and they give free drinks and they do these all of these different techniques to keep somebody stimulated, but the mind is more tired, and there is some thinking that the the mind doesn't get tired in a uniform manner, but that certain areas of the brain, like the frontal cortex, become tired more quickly. And what ends up happening is then um, that part of the brain, which is used to then do rational assessments, to then think about consequences of action, it becomes fatigued. And now what wins up, what, what ends up winning out is the more hedonic, or pleasure-driven, impulsive mm-hmm. mind. And so you're more likely to, well, this is some work from Ben Kotcherman, who's a researcher at Duke. Um, what he showed is that if you're gambling, this is in a gambling task within a lab, you're more likely to make more fre- take more frequent risk, and you're also more likely to take much larger risk when you're mm-hmm. under sleep deprivation. And when they looked at what was happening in the brain while this behavior was manifesting, what they showed was that um, the area of the brain that is involved in encoding the value for potential gains, so part of the brain is thinking, wow, how much could I win if I bet this much on this, you know, on, on you know, this, whatever the, whatever the gamble is. That part is hyperactive um, during sleep loss. And the part of the brain that is then encoding the value of losses, well, yeah, but if I put $50 down, then what is... Do I really want to, you know, lose it? All of that kind of that part of the argument, mm-hmm. it becomes uh, suppressed. Right. So you end up having this this imbalance between your kind of risk taking side and then the the risk you know management side. Yeah. And so you're more likely then to pursue these kind of the the pleasure, the impulse, and possibly very possibly make bad decisions. Hey guys, what's up? Bruno Gama here, Brazilian Health Nut. And let's take a little break from the show because I would like to offer you something. If you go to my website, www.brazilianhealthnut.com and click on the page Burn Fat Forever, you can go ahead and claim your free consultation with me right now, okay? Or you can just send me an email at brazilianhealthnut at gmail.com. So you can start to lose weight and feel healthier right now, okay? So go ahead and claim your free consultation with me and remember that spots are limited, okay? Now let's get back to the show. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, it's kind of like you're already tired and you see that cookie and you're like, oh, I don't care, I'm going to have it. <laughs> That's what happens. Uh, you mentioned before a little bit about the role of the hormones and ghrelin, leptin, and insulin. Can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of fat loss and sleeping? 
<clears throat> sure. Let me say one last point about the cog- cognitive aspect. Yeah. There's, I want to parse out an element of that because it's very interesting. So on one, um, what you just said is, oh, I see the cookie and I, and I say, oh, you know, screw it, I'm going to have it. Well, actually, there's two different effects that are taking place. So when you look at the cookie, your desire for it is heightened, hmm. right? That is actually elevated during sleep loss. So your desire for something that, you know, maybe ordinarily you know you like, but it's not good for you, that is heightened. And at the same time, you have more ap- apathy. So that is what we call effort discounting. You're, more, you're less likely to make an effort towards something that you care about. And so that, if you, that, that means being healthy, eating well, all that, you're, more, you're less likely to then maintain the behavior that's going to support it. And so you ha- the chips are stacked against you. All the areas of the brain that are, you know, that are like the bad food are elevated in their activity and all the areas that are kind of counteracting it, including the effort needed to, you know, act according to your goals is then suppressed. So I, I thought I'd, inter- I'd mention it because it's, I think it's very interesting how, you know, it all ends up with behavior that means that you're less likely to eat foods that are possibly on, you know, part of your goal to be healthy, be fit, be lean. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So now hormones, um, the, there's a variety of different hormones that, are, that seem to be affected. And the research is a little bit equivocal. So we're not, we, we don't see very consistent findings every single time. But, and so I think that the story remains to be told. But some early signals found that um, one hormone, leptin, which I mentioned earlier, this is, the, this is a hormone that is released from fat tissue. And we used to think fat was just a, you know, a gland, uh, this, this, this reservoir of energy that helped keep the body warm. But we now know it's an exocrine gland, so it's releasing hormones into the bloodstream. Um, and leptin is one of the, you know, probably the best known one. Um, and that travels to the brain, and it'll communicate with an area of the brain called the hypothalamus. And it'll tell the hypothalamus that there's this, you know, X amount of leptin or fat on our body. And then in response to that, the brain will then initiate a cascade through changing your behavior, through changing your interest in foods, through what are autonomic responses or how your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system is working, and then also through hormones to then adjust your propensity to either put on weight or take it off. And so if you've ever measured your weight over a period of time, you see that you're not the exact same weight every single day, but that your weight is going to fluctuate a little bit day by day. But then if your weight's stable, you're going to maintain that trajectory of being, you know, approximately the same weight over a period of time. But it's not like you're going to be the same weight every day. And that's what's happening in the background. Mm-hmm. Is that there's these signals that are being read by the brain from the body. The body's responding to those and it's always kind of measuring, you know, moving things up and down, right? So energy expenditure and hunger and hormones, all that are affecting, you know, fat storage. Um, and so what was found is that in response to sleep loss, uh, leptin levels would go down. And what that, if you think about it, if leptin is released from fat, it's telling the brain that there's fat on the body. And so when leptin decreases, it's a signal that your fat storage has decreased as well. And then that makes the brain respond by making you more hungry less energized and also so you're not really satisfied Le- yeah less satisfied 
you'd be less satisfied, right? So you're you're more likely to take in more calories at a meal. You're more likely to pursue fattening foods. And that's what's happening in the background, okay? Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's another hormone called ghrelin, and ghrelin is released from the stomach. And it's the only peptide that's released from your GI tract that is a- that actually promotes hunger. Most other pe- most of the other peptides, whether it's GLP-1 or PPY or cholecystokinin, these are all released from different types of cells within the GI tract and mostly in response to food to help your- you feel full in response to a meal. Ghrelin, on the other hand, is different. Ghrelin is released from what are called oxyntic cells of the gut. It gets into the bloodstream, it travels to the brain, and it makes you hungry. And what we see after sleep loss is that ghrelin levels go up, Mm. right? And so it makes sense because other things that make ghrelin go up are stress. So ghrelin is basically a stress hormone. Okay. And sleep loss is a stressor. And so not only does ghrelin make you hungry, but it'll also have almost the opposite effects of, of, of leptin. It actually will um, change hormones so that you are more likely to deposit fat and to store it. And one thing that you see, you know, for example, in people that have gained weight and then lost it, those who have, let's say, lost 50 pounds – they will have high levels of ghrelin. And so what you see in people with high levels of ghrelin is that they will need to eat 20% more before they experience the same degree of fullness as somebody that has lower leptin levels. And so this has become a therapeutic target, an area where pharmaceutical companies have looked into. Is there a way that we can adjust the ghrelin system so that you know we're not having as voracious of an appetite in response to weight loss? Um, but anyway, to go back to the sleep mm-hmm. line, not getting enough sleep is something that is going to stimulate the release of ghrelin and high ghrelin levels is going to cause you to want to eat, you know, be very, very hungry and then also to deposit fat. Okay. Yeah. What about insulin? I remember reading something about when you don't sleep very well, you also have a big impact on insulin secretion and it's kind of, like you're almost like a diabetic, uh, in terms of the, the blood sugar levels. Yeah, so one of the first things that was discovered in um, the, the, the first signal that made researchers interested in looking into this connection between sleep loss and weight was, um, was actually a look at, um, at glucose levels. And so what happened is that it was, like a lot of things in science, it was pretty serendipitous in that... Um, the researchers weren't necessarily looking for alterations in glucose levels in response to sleep loss specifically, but they found that indeed after a night of sleep loss, people that were not diabetic or even pre-diabetic were manifesting or showing a blood glucose profile that looked like they had diabetes. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty alarming. Now those, you know, there was some interesting limitations to that research so the, the two different groups that were compared in this original study was one group was given four hours of, t- of time in bed to sleep. The other group was given 12 hours of time in bed. And so both were kind of like unrealistic you know, amounts of time. But oftentimes research will do that because they're trying to look for any sort of a signal and then they can you know, probe and look into it further, right? So you try to get these extremes and see what's there. Um, but yeah, so that's mm-hmm. one been one issue is... Um, 
is look as is dysregulated blood sugar. Got it. Got it. Another thing I'd like to get your opinion, it's the impact of technology. You know, we live in this place where we have cell phones and computers and artificial lights everywhere. When back in the days, we didn't have all those things. And how is that affecting the quality of our sleep? Well, it's a, there's a big impact, very big impact. In fact, you can look at sleep... Um, you can bisect it and you can think about um, the amount of sleep that you get um, and then you can also think about the timing of your sleep so let's say you usually get seven and a half hours per night or seven mm -hmm. hours yeah that's me seven and a half it's perfect for me I feel like a, I wake up like a baby when I have seven and a half hours <laughs> <laughs> that's good all right um, so if Let's say, though, you usually go to bed at midnight, but then, you know, last night you went to bed at 4 a.m., right? So four hours later, but you still got seven and a half hours of sleep. Sleep, in that scenario, you're still getting the same duration of sleep, but it's not going to be as restorative. Mm -hmm. It's not going to make you feel the way that you want it to feel. It's, and there's reasons for that. And those reasons have a lot to do with your body being very attuned to the light darts, the light dark cycle of our environment, right? So it's lots of light outside comes into the eye and that light will tell the brain that it's day. And there's a very special track that goes from what are called retinal ganglion cells in the retina back to uh, what's called the master clock. And that tells the brain indeed it is daytime. Okay. In the in the evening, when the light, if you, everybody picture a sunset who's listening, the sun goes down. Um, the, so the intensity of the light changes, right? So it's less intense, but the tone of the light also changes as well. It goes from more, you know, a bright blue sky to a more amber. Think about the colors of sunset: ambers, yellows, right? And then it can eventually gets darker and darker, goes to darkness, and the type of light that we had prior to modernity, industrial revolution, was fire. Right? Fire and the moon, fluctuations in the moon. And that's it. Mm -hmm. And now we've got all sorts of artificial light, and there's a couple different issues. We're not spending very much time outside. We spend a lot of time indoors. And in, you know, typically for... Uh, you know, cognitive workers, which means that you're, you know, you're sitting at a computer all day, then it's totally common for you to go to work in your car where it's maybe dark, sit up, particularly certain times of year, sit inside all day long, drive home, and you get very little sunshine during the day. Um, I hope everybody who's listening gets, gets outside at least a half an hour per day. I'll tell you why in a second. Yeah. Um, but then, Uh, and then at night, so we're not getting very bright light during the day because we're inside. And by the way, the light inside is much less intense than the light out, outside, more than you would imagine, more than you'd imagine. Then in the evening, we turn on high-definition televisions, and we've got artificial light, and we're now using halogen bulbs and LED lights, and they, that emits a lot of – there's a lot of blue light within that spectrum of light. Right? It just looks like white, white light, but there is the, the blue spectrum of light is in that light. And that blue spectrum is telling your brain that it is day. 
And what happens then is because that your brain is getting a signal that it is day when it actually is night out, your brain tries to adjust um, and advance your circadian rhythms, which are these, imagine this kind of sinusoidal pattern of this oscillating 24-hour period. So it tries to adjust the timing of that. And a good way to think about it is, you know, if you're, I'm in San Francisco, and if I travel to, you know, Italy, then when I arrive in Italy, I am going to be on San Francisco time. My biology is still going to be on San Francisco time. But over the course of maybe five, six, seven days, as I'm in now a a time zone that is completely opposite of where I was, through light coming into my eye, I can fully adjust so that within a short period of time, not short enough for most people, but in a short period of time, I will have completely changed the timing of my physiology, every cell, right? And it's now going to be attuned to functioning during the day at a time where usually I'd be asleep. And that, so the, the way that that happens is all through light, mostly, mostly through light. And so because we have the ability to manipulate our environment with the, the fidelity that we do, it's easy to then, again, create a very unnatural artificial signal to the brain. Not enough light during the day, too much at night. And then that can then lead to all sorts of problems. Mm-hmm. And it can lead to a lot of sleep issues because sleep itself is in part a circadian rhythm. And so a lot, this is a common experience for some people is that you, know, you wake up and you feel pretty sleepy a lot of the day. And you, know, you need coffee and you're not really yourself. And then you're tired all day. And then right before you go to bed, you feel you're most alert. All of a sudden, you become more alert than you were. Um, and that is the result of a that you were all day, and that's the result of a mistimed uh, circadian rhythm, and so that's really problematic in our society today mm-hmm. because it leads to underfunctioning during the day, mood impairments, slower reaction time, worse memory, altered decision making, yeah, and then in the, right, and then in the evening it leads to insomnia, and and this pattern perpetuates itself, and yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the circadian rhythm is huge. Sun is so important. Oh my God, we can talk for hours and hours just about that topic. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about the action. Just some steps for people who are listening to where we should start in terms of okay, I know I'm not sleeping well. What should I do? Where should I start? Well, you know, if I, I would say if regardless if you have a sleep issue or not. It's always good to try to maintain good practices around your sleep. And the way to do that, because at night, fun things can happen, right? I mean, you, there's opportunity to go. Uh, a lot of people work during the day. So at night, you know, you can either watch TV. You spend time with family. You can go, you go out and meet a friend at a bar, whatever it is. And so what ends up happening is a lot of times our lifestyles will encroach into our sleep. And I and by no means would I want to suggest that you, you know, you give up all the fun things in your life to get good sleep, but it can become problematic. And so it's also really good to to recognize that how you feel and perform the next day is going to be largely determined by generally day by day the type of sleep pattern that you're maintaining. Mm-hmm. And so what I try to do is try to get an adequate time of in bed every night and adequate means you know i'm giving my body enough time in bed to get the sleep that it wants so i'm not waking up 
on average with an alarm, I'm waking up when my body wakes up naturally. And in order for that to happen, I need to get into bed early enough so I'm giving myself that opportunity. Right. So that's important. Secondly, um, I want to make sure that the timing of my sleep is pretty consistent because if on a regular basis, when I was younger, I did this a lot. I would go to bed by 11 um, most nights, probably, you know, be Sunday through Thursday or Sunday through Wednesday. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'd go to bed at two or three in the morning because I'd be going out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so I was basically in almost perpetual jet lag because over those course of those couple of days where I was staying up much later, my rhythms were trying to catch up, but it, you know, and they were trying to then make adjustments so that, uh, because, well, you're, if you're up at that time, your body is like, okay, well, we need to make some adjustments. So we're ready to be up at that time tomorrow. And because it can take a while for these adjustments to take place, you end up not having very good, strong circadian alignment. And that can lead to, again, all sorts of problems. And those problems will range from physiological issues, impaired uh, you know, cell cycle growth and repair processes, impaired you know, cardiovascular function, et cetera. And that can lead then to disease, if you continue to do that over time, mm-hmm. to problems of behavior, so impaired balance, impaired reaction time, um, even effort discounting, as we were discussing earlier. And that can lead to things like accidents, car accidents, really bad choices at work, you know, and all sorts of things like that. And and so not only will sleep, getting inadequate sleep for you cause those problems, but also even if you're trying to get adequate sleep and you're getting, but you're having this high variability in when you're sleeping and when you're awake, that itself, even if you're getting seven and a half hours or eight hours, whatever that is, that itself can cause problems. And so I try to give myself enough time in bed, and I try to also make sure that the timing of my sleep is pretty consistent. Okay, so consistency is key. Consistency is key. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cool. What else do you think it's, besides consistency, what else do you, do you think it's really, really essential for us to, to look during our day? What are you doing? Of course, food is a huge, it's a huge subject. But do, you, yeah. do, you, do you have anything else in terms of giving some tips? Or having this sleep like a baby kind of night? Sure. Yeah, so um, there, it's, it's funny because a lot more work has been done looking at the effects of sleep loss on what we eat the next day. Far fewer studies have looked at how what we eat today affects how we sleep tonight. Hmm. And uh, some work recently came out by Marie-Pierre Saint-Ange, who does great work. I, I read all of her, her stuff. And she looks at, um, what she did is she gave uh, a group of normal people, um, she had them in the lab, and she monitored what they ate. They gave them a control diet for four days in a row. So they, everything that they, these participants ate was very controlled. And then they looked at their sleep at night. Then, on the intervention day, they let people eat whatever they wanted, and they m- measured what they ate. And then at night, they measured their sleep. So what did they find? Well, they found that the four days where what they ate was very consistent, they noticed that their sleep was also very consistent. So there was no significant difference from night to night. On the fourth, on that last night, where they let them eat whatever they wanted, 
they noticed some, they had some st- uh, statistically significant correlations. And what they found is that dietary fiber is very good for promoting a uh, good amount of sleep, uh, particularly deep, slow-wave sleep. And that deep, slow-wave sleep is the type that makes you feel really restored the next day. That, that is the slept like a baby, mm-hmm. oh, gosh, I feel really good. Yeah. You want to get that sort of sleep. They also noticed that high saturated fat and high sugar was problematic. And people that had high saturated fat, not all fat, but saturated fat, and high um, simple sugars would had more fragmented sleep. So they had more arousals over the course of the night. Mm-hmm. And they had subdued slow-wave sleep. So the depth of their sleep was, was decreased. And so either way, um, I mean, that th- these are signs that there's some things that are happening. There's some interaction here between how we eat and how we sleep and then how we sleep and what we eat. Um, but I thought that that was very interesting. And obviously we need more work there because it was just one study. It didn't answer every question, but it was much needed. And uh, I'm, I was glad to see that come out. Mm, okay. Two last questions for you, Dan. The supplements. A lot of people use supplements, melatonin, which is a hormone to help with sleep. There is GABA, valerian root, passion fruit, so many kinds of diff- supplements nowadays in the market yeah. to help promote a better sleep. What, what do you think about? Well, you know, I, there's, there's like a lot of supplements, uh, the, the evidence for their efficacy is either nothing or pretty minimal. And part of the reason is because clinical trials in humans is, are, is very expensive and hard. And, um, and there's just not, for organizations like supplement manufacturers, there's just not the financial reward. Because anybody, who's going to put in you know, millions and millions of dollars to study melatonin when anybody can sell it, right? So the incentives make it so that it's oftentimes difficult to study supplements. Now, it doesn't mean that it... It doesn't happen, but it usually means that there's not a lot of there's not a lot of research typically on supplements, and so um, you know melatonin is a hormone. It's produced by the pineal gland in the brain, and how does the body produce it? Well, when the light goes down, we were talking about light earlier. When the tone and intensity of light changes over the day, that will signal to the brain to produce melatonin. And melatonin has a slight effect on producing sleepiness, but it's not very robust. But it does mean that indeed it reinforces that, yes, it's dark out, right? So it's a way for right. – uh, it's a mechanism by which what's happening in our environment gets translated to the brain. It's, it's, a, it's kind of the messenger, okay? And so having adequate melatonin – circulating in our bodies is is very important because not only does it tell the brain that it's nighttime so that helps to then make sure your circadian rhythms are really anchored um and but also melatonin is a very powerful antioxidant that has effects throughout the body and we're spending a lot less time in darkness right because not only are we um you know we're getting less sleep as a society but we're also spending a lot more time in light, artificial light. And so in our past, we might have experienced, let's say, 10 to 14 hours of darkness, depending on the time of the year. Therefore, we're producing 10 to 14 hours of melatonin. 
Now we're getting six and a half hours of time in bed on average during the week, and all of that time has light in it. So wow. we're cutting we're cutting the amount of you know time that we're producing high amounts of melatonin in sometimes more than half. Um, so should we take melatonin as a supplement? Well, oftentimes people take it to sleep, and it can have a, again a bit of a sleep inducing effect, but it's not very powerful. But I should also say that the effect of placebo is powerful. Uh, so when you right. think you and hey, you know whatever works, placebo yeah. is oftentimes written off. But if it's actually helping you go to sleep, great. And um, and I don't care what it is, if it's a water pill or whatever. And it's even better if there is a slight sleep-inducing effect because that makes you feel, oh, yes, it is working. And that mm -hmm. makes the mind and body relax even more. Mm -hmm. So with hormones, the concern is always if I take, if I take a hormone, is that going to have any effect on my endogenous production, the ability of my body to produce it on its own? It's always a concern, um, and, it should, and you always have to be mindful of that. And um, there, there is some studies where regular long-term usage of melatonin might have an impact on your, your brain's ability to produce it. Um, now, whether or not that's very problematic, um, it's, we don't really know because maybe within a few days, if you, let's say you take it for six months, but then a few days after that, after you stop taking it, you're right back to normal. You're just not normal the first night. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's one of the areas where we just need more work but it's very possible, you know, if you know, one of the most common deficiencies in our world today is vitamin D. Right. And what is vitamin D produced from? It's produced from sun hitting the skin and also from certain foods that we eat. And, of course, why are we deficient? Well, we're spending all of our time indoors. Yeah. Likewise, melatonin is produced in the absence of light, and we're spending a lot more time in light. And so... We, it, there, there might be a case, there is a case for investigating, should we be taking melatonin on a nightly basis like we take vitamin D on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. because we're, as a supplement. As a supplement. We have an absence of, absence of it. So, yeah, now, you know, along that lines, you can take melatonin directly. Um, you can also take tryptophan, which is the precursor to melatonin. So tryptophan is a, is a amino acid mm -hmm. that will cross the blood-brain barrier. It is then ultimately converted into melatonin through a multi-chain process. It gets uh, first converted to 5-hydroxytryptamine. You can buy that directly as well. That will, tr that will go across the blood-brain barrier. And so there's a couple of ways that you can do it. The way that I personally like to do it is instead of taking melatonin directly, I try to, I will wear glasses at night, starting two hours from bed. The orange glass? The orange glass. Yeah, I use those too. People think I'm crazy sometimes. I walk outside and just like, I don't care. And people are like, Whoa, what, what is that guy doing? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so well, what are you doing? In that case, the, those orange glasses are filtering blue out of the spectrum that your, your, your brain can see. And because of that, you're creating what's called circadian or virtual darkness, which means that your brain can see. You can see outside, but you're not telling your brain that it's day. And that's really smart and it's really yeah. important. Especially nowadays where there is artificial lights everywhere. We have to, right. to use something to protect ourselves. Cool. Thank you so much. Um, last question for you would be this. For people who are listening right now and want to lose weight forever, uh, trying to lose and can't, 
what just one action what if you can just give one tip what would that be like if you know just one just so people can just give give a little bit of uh action right now after listening to this podcast okay <laughs> you're gonna laugh at me because my 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 first thing it doesn't have to be related to sleep it can be anything my first instinct is to make dramatic change hmm Because oftentimes, people that are struggling with weight will live in and out of a cycle with a little bit of, you know, they, they make a little bit of change, they get a little bit of benefit, and then they're right back to where they were. Mm -hmm. The best results will happen when you adopt a lifestyle that's actually very doable. You don't have to become an extreme exerciser. You don't have to become even an, you know, an extreme lifestyle enthusiast, right? There's even this whole idea of orthorexia, which is an yeah. unhealthy relationship with health action. But mm. you do need to eat the right food because there's not a silver bullet, right? And that means you have to have, you know, eating an adequate low energy dense diet, right? So that means lots of fiber, lots of vegetables, some fruits, um, You also have to be maintaining enough physical activity, right? Enough physical activity so that uh, because physical activity not only helps with weight control, it does so by helping, again, kind of like sleep. It helps the brain make better choices when you're getting it regularly. Correct. And it also will help the body be healthy, right? A healthy body is going to function better. And maintaining weight stability is a part of a healthy body and brain. And then, of course, getting sleep, right? So getting, um, getting the right amount of sleep. Now, the effects of sleep are going to be more longer term, right? Mm -hmm. It's the condition, it's the internal condition that you're affecting with a regular healthy sleep practice that's going to create, again, an internal environment that is more favorable to weight, you know, lowering body weight and then stabling, stabilizing. Um, and so what you see is that if you have like, for example, high fragmentation of your sleep, like people with sleep apnea, then the area of the brain that is directly responsible for controlling, it's called your fat thermostat. And if you want to go to my blog, I have several blogs mm -hmm. describing what is the fat thermostat, where is it located, et cetera. Um, and it's dansplan.com slash blog. I'll tell you about that in a moment. But, um, that is, it's really important to treat that, you know, you want to be as kind to that part of the body as possible. And you want to remove as many stressors as possible. And eating well removes stressors. Getting enough physical activity, but not too much, removes stressors. And then getting enough sleep also removes stressors as well. And right. that is the best condition cool. for your body. To so it's more about a lifestyle. If you have to say, change your lifestyle, change your mindset, and then everything else is going to come naturally. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and give it time. Because sometimes people will look at the scale... Um, and a month will go by and they'll only lose a couple of pounds. Uh, and they think, oh, you know, this isn't really working. It's not enough. But mm -hmm. what, what's interesting is a lot of people that will adopt a paleo lifestyle, which is not just the diet, but when they start exercising and sleeping better, a lot of times what's so nice about this whole lifestyle is people make, make a lot of changes. They get very into how they're living. And when they do that, it's not uncommon to hear people report You know, I wasn't even thinking about my weight, but I lost 40 pounds over the last eight months. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And it was, a, it was because it was this benefit. Now, think about if, if you think about that, 40 pounds in eight months, it's not a ton of, I mean, it, 
on a day by day, month by month basis, it's a, it's a little bit. You know, you're definitely seeing the scale move. Um, and sometimes it's maybe 20 pounds over eight months, but you have to allow a healthy lifestyle time to take an effect. Right? Yeah. And so just be patient with it. Know you're doing something good for yourself. You will feel good in response to it no matter what, and give it time. Cool. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for all this information. And where we can find more about your work? Uh, you said you have the website dancplan.com. Any, any place else we can, we can find something? Yeah, so go to danceplan.com. That is uh, where a lot of the, my thinking about how to affect healthy lifestyle, how to track sleep, um, what's important for sleep and food and exercise, all of it happens. We, we generate content, um, and then we also have tools that help you be healthy. So go there, check it out, and then you can also see Dan's Plan Health, which is my Twitter handle, and I do some, uh, some tweeting there, and, and we also have a Facebook page, which you can check out. So, yeah, thanks for having cool. me. Awesome, man. Thank you so much, and have a good day. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Brazilian Health Nut Show. Go to